discovered it must be told <laughs> from beginning to end. Now, here's a little story I got to tell. Here is a story about music. Stories about songs, the jazz and Jay-Z, Jay-Z, Jay-Z. Usually for the things I do from DJing, radio show, writing, pretty much all things I do, I generally avoid the most popular artists, or at least when I do things that are more popular, try to bring things people don't know about them, which is what applies here, you know, specifically to the Jay-Z part. Obviously, the jazz is also well-known in certain circles as well in his own regard. But also, there's a personal reason for this particular episode. Something that I've struggled with, you know, for as long as I can remember. And it's like uh, one of the famous phrases you talk about people in, in hip hop culture. And it's an, I'm sure it expands to other things as well. But I just know it very firmly in the world of hip hop is doing something for the love. And that's kind of how I've approached it from the moment I first discovered it in 1979, 80. Just like I just had a passion for it from that moment and just moved full steam ahead and didn't spend decades not really thinking about being compensated or gaining anything from it. Of course, I thought about gaining things from it, but not, I'm saying, I didn't make choices on the things I did based on that. I would hope maybe they would turn to things, but I just did them because passion was the primary driver. In that, what happens a lot of times is there's some things that I've been involved with loosely or directly or, you know, involved. Even things come back later, people tell me that I influenced or inspired them that I didn't even fully realize um, I learned about later. This is a handful of things that I think they probably would have happened anyway, but there is just some piece of history that connects me to when it did happen, I was a part of it. And I don't really talk about those things because people generally won't believe them, I guess, to some people who don't know me, or it just seems like I'm being boastful for being boastful. But it's not really what it's about for me in bringing them up now. It's more so about of learning more and more as I face challenges and trying to like get funding for my projects like the book or you know the website project I had years ago or the archive projects I want to do now to preserve hip hop history that's getting lost as we lose a lot of our pioneers and key people and I'm just doing work that I think I don't see other people doing in some regards and I'm having trouble getting support and I think if these things were out there that I was involved in maybe it would help that support. So that's kind of why I'm thinking maybe, and I've just heard people like, you should tell your own story because apparently other people aren't going to tell that story. And so this is one of those, but also it's about me being a fan of uh, the jazz and also Jay-Z, particularly in the early parts of his career. For those who know or don't know, jazz and Jay-Z got their start together. Jazz was a little further along and doing his thing in the neighborhoods in Brooklyn. And Jay-Z was a guy that he connected with and kind of uh, mentored early on, you know, in the 80s. And they had a crew early on called the High Potent. Um, it was them and these two guys were twins. Uh, so four MCs, they did one record, HP Gets Busy in 86. But that was a super underground, independent record. I didn't even know about it. I mean, if I heard it, you know, you know, it's one of those things I could have heard once at a party or at a show on the radio and just forgot about it. I remember when I finally did hear it or get it, 
like, you know, in the internet era, 2000 and something, I don't know, five or something, I finally got it on the internet. I was like, man, I think I've heard this before. So I think I may have heard it like once, but it certainly wasn't something that was widespread. But from there, even that early 86, you can hear Jazz and Jay-Z sort of hinting at their tripling style and the thing that would be like, you know, uh, famous in hip hop more in the late 80s, early 90s. But Jazz and Jay-Z, as they call themselves, the originators, which we'll get to, are a key part of that style. I'm teaching and reaching and preaching and showing the flowing and growing and blowing the rest of the best right out of the box. I shoot, shoot, shoot. first time that I actually heard Jay-Z was through the jazz. The new I was soft, right, Jay? On a strength, money. Laugh the good food and tons of hunts. Eat and be merry. When jazz had a record out called Word to the Jazz, the J-A-Z, and Word to the J-A-Z Jazz album in 89, he was very proactive at shouting out his partner. He called him his partner, my partner Jay-Z. Everywhere I go, my, you, know, my, you know my man Jay's near. I said my name is Jazz and she did amaze me when she said the rapper get me and my partner Jay-Z. My witness was she stacked, was she pumped and slam and working so true and deep black. I never knew any other artist to put so much effort in shouting out their partner or crew. I mean, crews, yeah, if he were like down, like in a group and they were on the record with you, like the Crash Crew and Treacherous, and then their extended crew could be like the Poison Clan for Crash Crew. You would hear those things mentioned all the time, but just someone being like, I got a person in my crew, my homegirl, my home guy who raps, like someone just going out of their way on several songs, mentioning that on a record. I never heard anyone do it to the level that the jazz did it for Jay-Z. A lot of times artists as big as Jay-Z is where you'll get a lot of false history. People will think they'll, they'll do like some simple searches on Google and think they now know the Jay-Z history and it gets all mixed up like Jay-Z appearing on Hawaiian Sophie. Well, he doesn't rhyme on the record. He does dialogue and he's in the video, you know, stuff like that. But on that record, the Word to the Jazz album, he's mainly just doing background vocals and dialogue and getting shouted out by the jazz. Look to my partner Jay, yeah I saw it Struck the shoulder set, hey, I can't call it And that same idea continued on the Jazz's second album To Your Soul a year later, 1990 And that added also the bonus of him having Jay do verses Two verses on the album Which also wasn't super common to have one artist appear twice on the album I'm Trying to think of that had happened before that. I think it has happened before. I'm just drawing a blank. But it wasn't, it certainly wasn't common. And so, you know, he appeared on Prince Paul track, It's That Simple. Freestyle rhymes are easy to come by. A pen and a pad when it comes to this one guy. Some try to leave tongue tie because they flow like Nata. And both the breeze when I shout by. I get proud because I rep bro. When someone asks you to step, no. I rank so, yo, check, go to the next line. It seems sensible. For a dope beat, you seek the Prince Paul. So simple to whip in. And the song of the originators, where they sort of lay claim to this tripling style, of which they demonstrate with great veracity, great uh, <laughs> whatever skill level on the originators' music video and all that. The lyrical miracle right, if even until it drops you. Crazy seek spiritual help from Jazz and Jay Z. Standing in all your soul, the best and more, the rest will fall. Because if I want, just like on the floor, you think it's a poor. We saw because we're greater, and we are. Think of the, think of the, think of the, think of the, the originators were. 
far as the jazz going back, how I first heard the jazz though, before I heard Jay-Z, was via a guy called Fresh Gordon. Fresh Gordon was part of a crew from Brooklyn called Choice and Seas. They had a few things like Beat of the Street. Gordy's Groove was a B-side where he got to show his production skills. And so that was how I got aware of Fresh Gordon. Kind of a side note, my sister uh, lives in Brooklyn and someone who lives in her neighborhood in Brooklyn is Keith from the group The Choice and Seas. So like she's someone he she sees in the neighborhood. She told me, oh yeah, I know Keith. Like, I'm like, what, you know Keith from The Choice of Seas? So it's like, there's that connection. When I was out there, I meant to connect with him, just never happened. But you know, so there's just this connection that it kind of like the whole like Fresh Gordon story and how it leads to me learning about the jazz and then eventually Jay-Z. Fresh Gordon had a, a single called My Feli in 86. And this leads back to something else. Um, shout out to UTFO. Rest in peace, Kango Kid, a super talented individual. Could sing, could rhyme, produce, put groups on, and like he, you know, helped put out Whistle. He, he was just involved in so many things with his versatility. Was a dancer for Houdini with Dr. Ice of UTFO before they made records. So this dynamic force in hip-hop, untouchable force organization in hip-hop, uh, UTFO. And also rest in peace to another member who died years ago, an educated rapper. That group has had some tragedy over the last few years. And shout out Dr. Ice, who I interviewed not too long ago. That'll be coming sometime soon. And also the DJ Mixmaster Ice still doing his thing. One thing about UTFO them being from Brooklyn, I just mentioned like that kind of like, you know, history of Kango, what he did, jazz was similar. He could sing, you know, he did singing, you know, he, you know, he was even doing that before he was rhyming. He talked about that in one of his songs on that first album, Words to the Jazz. He talked about that. I've been wanting to interview Kango Kid in the jazz for decades and I've interviewed the jazz, but never got this deep. I want to know more about the influence of the Brooklyn sound, you know, like a lot of things like from the Jazz and Jay-Z, UTFO, Fresco, Chub Rock, Special Ed, ESP, all these groups, some obviously more well-known than others, have at various times either themselves claimed or others on their behalf have claimed like, you know, origins to some of these styles. And so I want to get more deeper into that. But one thing that I think here is interesting that shows some of maybe the UTFO influence is that UTFO is best known, for better or worse, the song is important and great, Roxanne, Roxanne, but it's so great and so popular and so important that it often overshadows all the other great things UTFO were, particularly how skillful they were as the DJ, just like innovative scratch techniques, Kango Kid with innovative styles, educated rapper with just like advanced writing and vocabulary and advanced use of multi-syllables he was doing, and Dr. Ice with his personality and humor and multilingual. He was just doing the song Split Personality. Just listen to him on there and see the full like range of Dr. Ice. Inside of me, 
trying to control my body. I know they're there without a doubt, cause every once in a while they'll all speak out. Like, what is it? What can it be? Get with it, get busy. He talked to me about one thing. I'll give you a tidbit from the interview. It's how the scratch pattern of Mixed Master Ice, how that was Ice imitating his rap pattern. You thought you had a rope, you thought you was stupid. But EMD, your rap was plain stupid. I know you're educated, but what will you learn? Not all girls want to be involved with bookworms. But Roxanne's important in a different way because it started the trend of answer records. And this gets that, you know, I've talked about this before in, in different, I did a video dedicated to UTFO right before Kango Kid passed. Um, I did this video and I talk about, it's that tricky point of like, you couldn't have this thing happen without the UTFO record existing, but you also have to give credit to Roxanne Shantae and Marley Maul because they made Roxanne's Revenge in response. And that is technically what started the Roxanne Wars because then UTFO goes to get their own Roxanne, the real Roxanne, and it goes on and on from there. My point in all that relating to jazz and Jay-Z and particularly the jazz, when I first heard the jazz on my feli, it's an answer record to my Adidas by Run DMC. So that influence of the answer record trickled down and continued to be influential for years to come as a way for artists to get in the business or for labels to try to get cash in on the success of another record. And this is the only time I ever saw this, I think, on the back cover of the My Feel Like 12-inch, they specifically make a point of saying, this is not to diss run DMC. They like lay it out. We're just doing this to make another cool take on the idea of what run DMC did. I don't remember the exact wording, but they go in there and acknowledge run DMC's greatness of my Adidas in some kind of way. Then a year later, 87, a couple of things came out. One of them, I'm not sure which was first because it's around the same time, but one of them was a solo record from the jazz, I'm in Love. I knew you wanted me. And I wasn't really into love ballads that much, but I still would buy pretty much anything on Tommy Boy and any rap record I could afford. If I saw it and I had the money, I would buy it just to check it out. And so I got I'm In Love. I was like, oh, it's a straight love ballad. Not really what I've, you know, I should have known that, but I, it's fine. Okay. I'm still going to just keep my eye out because I heard my feline. And I, I don't actually know if I heard this or this other record, but you talk about a second first. So it's possible I heard that one first. And that's why I felt comfortable buying the I'm In Love single. That's certainly possible and probably likely. But one thing about the I'm In Love single is interesting coming out in 87 is that when we talk about Love Ballads, who gets a lot of credit for Love Ballads is LL Cool J, I Need Love. Also 1987. I don't know which of the two were first, but there's an interesting history between the jazz and LL. And usually on the interwebs, we hear about Jay-Z battling LL. It's not inaccurate, but it's not the full story. And I don't know if I've ever had heard the real full story told as I've been told the story. I'm sure it's out there. I'm sure there's plenty of interviews I have not seen by the Jazz or Jay-Z. And Jay-Z told me, presumably he's told someone else, I would think, besides me in 1997 or whenever that was, we talked about it. 
there's this history of a beef between the Jazz and LL. At least a beef that the Jazz had with LL. LL was probably oblivious to it. It gets tricky. Well, well I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> The other record from 87 with the jazz is a song called Music I Believe In by Fresh Gordon. This is the record that really made me go, okay, this guy, the jazz, is great. I gotta pay attention because of what he does on there. It's also just one of the best versions of Fresh Gordon up to that point. It might be his like crowning moment of records in general, in some ways. And it's important because it's one of the first rap records to really focus on the idea of celebrating the, the records we sample in hip hop and the breaks. And a matter of fact, once again, getting back to Brooklyn and giving props that I can't 100% confirm, but just from my research, I first heard about that idea being stressed on records from Brooklyn. Now, don't get me wrong. I know in the early 80s and like in Wild Style, they talk about breaks and there's, I'm sure there's examples of that in these different things. I'm trying to think of lyrics in my head and I feel like there's probably some example, but not to the degree of like this song by Music and Belie I Believe In where he's focusing on telling you about the breaks, who made them, what they are, and giving you bits and pieces of information. Somebody like Gary Bird, who's outside of rap, but also like a precursor forefather of what rap would become and his work with Stevie Wonder, you know, he had Soul Traveling, which is the first record I know in ever to do that, like in what, 74, where he talks about the breaks and does some great thing by giving you a sample of these breaks like Jackson 5 and these different musicians. So he's kind of the first to really do that. Just who I was looking for to take with me on this trip. Now, this ride is gonna blow your mind, cause the places we hang are gonna be so hip. I'm gonna turn you all into some people who are really deep down into what's happening. Get inside the GBE and let me take your soul traveling. In Brooklyn, particularly, besides this record, uh, around this same time, I'm not sure if it was the same time or right after, Chubb Rock is actually the first person I've ever heard use the phrase digging in the crates on a rap record on his first debut album in 88. But it may have been one of the singles that came out in 87. So that's why I'm saying I don't know which was first between this and the jazz thing. I, from my research, have listened to every rap song of the 1980s that is available. So anything that came out on any prominent known rap label, I've listened to it. If it was released, only things I haven't listened to, I'm talking about over like 12,000 songs I've listened to and like track data of what is being said, specifically studying the lyrics of these records. I've never found anyone to say digging in the crates before Chubb Rock at that point. So it may not be the first, but if he's out there, someone let me know, tell me that I'm wrong, I'll 
gladly concede, but that's what I found so far. That record was important because a lot of things like that and me like kind of getting an understanding about how digging in the crates was and what that was um, from that song music I believe in. In that song, the main break used is Ashley's Roach Clip from The Soul Searchers. Also in 1987, LL released his answer to Cool Modi, Jack the Ripper, using Ashley's Roach Clip, the same sample. Milky, and I'm back. My ace in the hole with this brand new track. I'ma slow it up and speed it up, and now you're gonna eat it up. Listen to the funky beat, my tongue is gonna beat it up. At this time, I was working at McDonald's. I hadn't graduated high school. And for a brief period, one of my friends slash rap rivals was this guy called K Prince. Keith Page, also known as uh, Doshe now. He goes by the name Doshe. But back in the day, he was K Prince. He's one of the first people I ever saw do a battle in North Chicago when I moved to Illinois. He, I saw him battling this, this kid, Freddie Hoy, in the hallway. And I stopped to watch this battle. I was like, oh, okay, they're doing these head-to-head, it's, it's, you know, face-to-face battles. I'm going to get on that. And the person I battled the most in my life is Keith Page, K Prince. Me and him were like rivals. We were like, every time we see each other in the hallway, we'd be like, just wouldn't even say words sometimes. We would just start rapping and like spit a verse. And so we have this history that I'm sure I'll speak about uh, K Prince in the future as well. But for a brief time, he also worked at McDonald's. And I remember this particular shift we were working and he was a cashier and I was like working the front bin, you know, calling, you know, let me get six Big Macs or whatever. And um, we were talk- he, was, he was listening to WNUR. 89.3 WNUR-FM. Which that was like, you want to hear about hip hop and history because they would talk about the records they played and give you a little bit of insight, which later on was an influence for me for when I did time travel. And I don't know which show this was, but I think this, might, this may have been the time when P. Lee Fresh was on the air, I'm not sure. And Parker Lee, who just also recently passed away, but I know that he would give a little insight on his show. It's one thing he was known for. I just don't know if that was the actual show that we're talking about here. But I didn't hear this show. I missed this Saturday, and K. Prince asked me if I was listening. I was like, nah, I missed that. He's like, you should have listened. They talked about this beat that Ella has with this upcoming rapper. And I was like, what is it? This person on the radio, whoever it was, was showing. They played music I believe in, and then played Jack the Ripper and was like, well, we, this record, we got it first. It came out first. Cause like, you know, radios, they would get records early when they came out. And so they had the jazz Fresh Gordon record first, played it. And then I don't know how much later got the Jack the Ripper. and was like, hey, you see that this is already taken. And they went into the detail. They showed Music I Believe In and Jack the Ripper using the same sample. Then they showed Word to the Jazz is the jazz's record. Word to the Jazz has jazz on the cover with the large black cat. If you know LL's career, you know, 89, he dropped Walking with the Panther with him on the cover with a large black cat, which came out after the jazz record. So there was those two things. Now that begs the question about the I'm in love single. Like, I don't know who was first. That's one I hadn't fully thought about. On 
Walking with the Panther, if you notice, LL's doing like this kind of like tripling style, like, you know, tripling up the words. Like, you know, he's, he's saying, he says tripling up the words. And of course, already the Jazz would have been doing that since 86 with HP Gets Busy. Him and Jay-Z have been doing that. So that is what the roots are, what the Jazz had an issue and his crew, Jay-Z, Sauce Money, and so on, had an issue with LL. So the story that Jay-Z told me in this interview, which we'll speak about more, that was the seeds to it. And there was this one time where L was doing some kind of promotional run and came to Brooklyn and it was Sauce Money who called him out. Like, you know, called him a biter or whatever. And then LL was like, whatever, we can battle. So it's like, even though LL was known, he still was like down the battle. battle anybody. And they all battled LL. Like Jay, Sauce, and Jazz all kick verses and L kick verses for all of them. And that's the basic story. Jay-Z told me he has it on videotape. I noticed for a while, it was mostly through Jazz, and I guess cannabis kind of tied you into it recently. I guess this is um, his his connection to it was the LL thing. Yeah. What, what what was that? Why do you, I mean? That was one of those battles. That was like, one of the battles. Yeah. Did it was one ever like actually a personal in in person battle? Yeah, it was me and him. We were both on the street. Oh, where? I, I had it on tape too. That was the ill thing. Oh. I lost it. Like I had a videotape of the whole thing. It was it was terrible. Where? Yeah. So where did all that stem from? I know it was a thing with the, you know, the the Jack the Ripper track and the the Panther and the Triplin style with jazz. So you know where did all that stem from? Actually, I guess then you know, that's where it all stemmed from. Then like when we seen him, it was like my man Sauce Money. Uh huh. It's called out like you don't want an L. <laughs> well, you know, of course he called back like whatever. You know what I mean? Right. And it was just like we went down there and we just got it on, got it on, got it on. He says the tape, he's like, yeah, the tape's in my mom's house. I just haven't bothered to go get it. Hopefully, I'm assuming something like Jay's probably never going to go get that tape. And probably there's a million reasons why he wouldn't share it. But hopefully one day that artifact comes to light. Because that would be an amazing thing. Just to see them at that time, like late 80s, the four of them. Like to even hear like what Sauce Money might, might sound back then or... You know, think about what, you know, Jazz was doing in 89, that era, what L was doing that era. Like, that could be a crazy situation. And there's a few stories like that about LL. Like, he was known to, like, Breeze told me about the time when him and LL battled in the apartment, LA Posse's, like, apartment. And it's a similar thing. It was, like, this kind of, like, ongoing thing. Someone being, like, they're similar, similar. L being, like, whatever, whatever. And, like, all right, let's battle. And so they battled and just kind of went verse for verse, showing style. So... LL, I'll give him his props that even though he was making hit records while that, he still was down to battle people who weren't as known as him. So that's a little more the full story about Jay-Z's version of what happened at that battle. He gave me a very Jay-Z type answer. I'll put it like that. If you know Jay-Z, he's kind of like a... A politician, <laughs> I'll say in that regard. And he kind of answered it like that. That was something that another reason why I was intrigued by the jazz, like learning these different things of how he may have been um, influencing even artists who were bigger than him or something, or at least 
he certainly was in the same skill level, if not better than these people who were more popular than him. And I'm not talking specifically LL, or at least exclusively, but I'm saying anyone that time in 89, 90, the jazz was as skillful as anyone for the most part. You know, like there's a few MCs who are the ultra, ultra elite, you know, you're like your rock hymns and your G raps. And then the jazz was, you know, not too far beyond that realm of, of that next tier of MCs. At the very least, I'm saying, that's where I would look at the jazz. And I was a big fan of his writing style. His writing and his styles, he was just such a versatile artist. And that first record, I remember because the, at the time, my best friend, which is, you know, I mean, I can't get to in too many details, but we were living very different lifestyles and we both had money because I, you know, I, I had a decent amount of money from my, my management job at McDonald's and he had money from the way he was getting money. So we were the ones that were like, if the crew wanted to do something, a lot of times it came down to us. You know, we wouldn't get a hotel room for the weekend. We're going to do this. Who was buying the, the, the rap tapes? It was like me and Curtis. One particular day we went to the store, we bought three tapes. I think I bought UTFO doing it. He bought the jazz, word to the jazz, and there was one more tape that I bought. I bought two and he bought the, he bought the jazz. And he ended up letting me keep the tape. So that's how the tape I still have of the jazz is the one that Curtis Bridges brought. We bought the tapes at Lakers Mall, and then we went to the basketball court right there across from the North Chicago High School. We were shooting ball with my boombox, the Sharp GF 575 that I had since 82, still in 89, was doing his thing. And we were playing uh, the jazz and UTFO while playing basketball. No need for an introduction. I ain't on a mission. I bet you recognize me if you had a television. But those are unfortunate. My name is... And I remember, like, I used to listen to that tape because the song Pumpin', uh, Give a Little Extras One. To this day, I'm sure there's more now, but throughout the 80s and 90s, so many, like, rap ballads are so not good, just in general, musically and lyrically are just not good. But also just in the way they look at relationships, and they're so, like, anti-women, so many of them. It's like, man, these are, these are really bad. But... Jazz, the song called Give a Little Extra, is probably the best written and the most accurate song about relationships in hip-hop for the 80s and 90s, almost certainly. Check this out. You're my heart, my love from the start, correct? Yeah. He had a song called Fun, and it was like he was able to like make that song dope. Or his battle rhymes on Lookout, where I was like, the couple of things he says, I'm like, oh, I think he might be calling someone out. Is one he says, I'm like, I thought he was calling out this Brooklyn crew. I've been wanting to ask him that forever. It's one of those things that, even though, like I said, I've interviewed him, there's certain things I don't ask because I just learned that MCs are just reluctant to share certain things from their past because they're like, it slid by and nobody knew it all this time. I don't want to open that door now because now I'm cool with that person or whatever, you know. It's so it, it gets tricky sometimes. So I don't always ask those questions. I try to save them to last. And then sometimes I just forget or they don't happen when I save them for last. So it just gets tricky. And so there's one thing he says and I'm like, I wonder if he's talking about this kind of uh, substantial Brooklyn crew. He, he says this phrasing in a very particular way that they say it on their song. And I'm just like, hmm. So go listen to that song. If you know about like Brooklyn hip hop from that era, you know, between 86 and 89 and listen to Lookout you might catch what I'm saying. I do you with quick, I stick and move and jab and prove and make your motion costly. So just back up your posse, the brothers from Marcy. Yes, we are the co-provoke, but we're the Pepsi and you're losing like the RC. 
That record showed me that he was a great lyricist, but I wasn't a big fan of the production. And it was just like a, a production style that had like more of like a pop leaning element. He was on EMI Records and that was a major label. So he had a major deal. EMI would send you to um a lot to Europe in the UK. He had a studio. Thing just came out recently with Moni Love talking about she met Jazz and Jay Z during those sessions. They were living in in um, London for um, recording this record, and that's how she met the Jazz and Jay Z. And this is why, because they were EMI who had a studio out there, and they were getting produced by like Brian Chuck New and Pete Q Harris. And there's even a weird thing because Fresh Gordon does not really get credit for that record, but Fresh Gordon has a YouTube page where he shares demos of some of those songs and says he produced them and they don't sound very different. So they definitely use elements from those demos. So it's something there that may be not completely accurate on the label credits. But anyway, Brian Chuck knew when PQ Harris, you know, were known for doing like stuff for like Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Also, um, Jazzy Jeff of the Funky Four had a solo record they produced stuff for. Uh, they did stuff for Kumo D. They did one of my favorite Raheem the Vigilante songs called Self-Preservation for the soundtrack. So they did some stuff that I like. And they sometimes could like mix that blend of like kind of pop sensibilities, but also got enough hip hop edge to it that worked, but not always. And so there's a little bit of that contrast on that first jazz album. Around that same time, the jazz also did a guest verse with the OJs on their album 89 and their album 91 because they were label mates on EMI. And so he was just showing his range in different ways, like rapping with the OJs, doing straight singing ballad records, you know, showing his skills to the highest degrees of rapper. You, you don't have many people who were top, not skilled in all of those things. Skilled singer, skilled lyricist, skilled with developing styles, skilled with production. It was rare at that time for people to be doing all that. Kango Kids, one of the only other ones. And I don't even know if he was showing those things to the full degree that the jazz was, at least in some aspects, because UTFO was largely produced by like Full Force, you know, at least as the credits would tell you. I don't know. I wasn't in the studio. I don't know. So I'm assuming even UTFO credits Full Force for their sound. So that seems like that's an accurate thing. But I, maybe Kango Kill was involved to some degree as well. Anyway, that's a perfect place to stop. And we'll come back next episode and go deeper into the albums by the jazz and look at how Jay-Z's evolution went from the jazz to original flavor and eventually starting his own solo career. Stories about stories about stories about stories about.